Well, all three synoptic gospels record a fascinating narrative about a demoniac who was delivered from the bondage of sin only to return to his hometown and proclaim Jesus as the Savior, proving how God can use anyone to reach the world. Mark 5, 1 through 20 records it this way. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus was asking him, What is your name? And he said to them, My name is Legion, for we are many. And Legion began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Verse 11, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them, they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see Jesus and observe the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they had become frightened. Those who had seen it described it to them, how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, and all about the swine. And they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. And he was getting into the boat, or as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him, that's Jesus, right, that he might accompany him. Can you imagine? He's just saying, for years my life has been bound up in sin and possessed by a demon. I I just want to be with Jesus. (laughs) Can I go with you? was imploring him that he might accompany him, and Jesus did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. You see, friends, God can use anyone to change the world. You're visiting Capital City Church this morning. You are joining us as we systematically preach through the life of Christ as it is presented in the four Gospels. We started Christmas Day 2022 in a series titled, The Word Became Flesh, and transitioned to the ministry of John the Baptist in a series titled, In the Spirit and Power of Elijah. That subseries led us to our current series titled, The Authentication of the King, and today marks the last sermon in that series, and it is titled, The Fields Are Ripe. 
The fields are ripe. And like the demoniac who returned to the Decapolis to preach the great things that the Lord Jesus had done for him, delivering him from bondage, today we will see another unlikely convert who is used to proclaim Jesus to the world. Much like last week's message by Pastor Grants titled, God Can Use Anyone, I think he titled the demoniac's name as, do you remember? Bread. I don't know where he got that from. Must be in the King James. Um, they're all about adding extra words. No, I'm, I'm so sorry. That was a low blow, but it's true. All right. <laughs> and they say, no, you take them out. Right. Uh, <laughs> but like last week, uh, I was uh, traveling here and, and excited to have enough internet service on my Walmart phone to be able to watch, and, and that's all the further I got was Fred the demoniac, and then my service went out. And so uh, uh, we will see today that God uses unlikely converts to save the world. Amen. So turn your attention to John 4, verses 1 through 42. Let's observe how this story unfolds. Notice in John 4, uh, in John 4, 4, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, that he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, You'll remember that the last time we were together, we noted that after Passover, Jesus went into the countryside of Judea, where John the Baptist had been baptizing, and spent time with his his, uh, new disciples, remember? And he, uh, as verse 2 says, the disciples were baptizing, it wasn't Jesus. As Jesus' ministry became more popular than John the Baptist, it was drawing attention that Jesus did not want, and therefore verse 3 says that he left Judea, which is in the south, And he went away again into Galilee, which is in the north. And notice verse 4, as I mentioned, he had to pass through Samaria. And I want us uh, for just a moment to take a look at a map. I've got it up here on the screen for you. I hope that you can kind of see this and that you're somewhat familiar with this. At the very bottom of the map, you see Jerusalem. And at the very top up there, you'll see a lake. That's the Sea of Galilee. And And to the north and to the west, that's to the top and to the left, that's Galilee. And that's where Jesus is heading uh, as he is leaving Judea. And you'll note, uh, just to the right there of Jerusalem, you you can see the Jordan River. You can see the Dead Sea, the very bottom of it. And it's likely down there at the Jordan River that Jesus has been baptizing. Uh, He had somewhat switched places with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had gone up north, close to Samaria, if not in Samaria, and was baptizing, and we'll think about and talk about that just a little bit uh, later. But familiarize here with this uh, yourself with this map, and the scripture says that he had to pass through Samaria. This zigzaggy line that is running between Jerusalem uh, north to Sychar, that's Jacob's well here in our text uh, from verse 5, uh, and is often referred to as what is called the Central Ridge Route in ancient Israel. If you're familiar at all with the geography, which you're probably not unless you've been there, you'll know that uh, that route right there is running right down the top of the mountain range. On, on the Mediterranean side, there would be easy passage, and certainly on the Jordan side, there would be easy passage. But here the text says that he had to pass through Samaria, and he is likely down at the Jordan River. Um, and so, why does he come up here to Jerusalem where you see that zigzaggy line start? Uh, it is uh, uh, maybe difficult for you if you are unfamiliar with maps, but there is an elevation change 
there? Why would Jesus go up this mountain uh, out of the Jordan River Valley that you can see up there to Jerusalem, which is about 3,000 vertical feet? It says that he had to do this. Well, why did he do it? To help you get an idea of that kind of elevation, 3,000 feet. Uh, this is a picture of the Snowy Range Mountains just west of us. Um, and it is taken from the Laramie River Valley, which is 7,500 feet in elevation. And then the picture up there at the top, you can see the snow-covered mountains there, hence the reason they call them Snowy Range, right? Is it about 10,500 feet in elevation? Well, you don't have to have really great math skills to know that that's about 3,000 feet in elevation. And you'll know this, that the Jordan River Valley is about 1,000 feet underneath uh, 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 sea level, and Jerusalem is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so you have about 3,000, 3,500 feet of elevation. So as we look at this picture, you guys, if you're being from Wyoming, are, are likely familiar with it. Uh, here's the idea. If you're standing right here, and this is the Jordan River, and you can go straight north along this nice flat plain and make your way to Galilee, or you can walk to the top of that mountain this morning and make your way down the ridge. That's what's going on. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Are you, with me? Are, are you tracking with me? Um, I want you to understand uh, if we can even begin to imagine what it must have been like to get up early in the morning uh, and say to yourself, well, <laughs> rather than going around this mountain, we'll just head on up. We're going to take the hard way. We're going to march ourselves straight up to the top of the mountain. And by the way, we need to be there, listen here, by noon, the sixth hour. Are you ready? <laughs> you got your marching shoes on? I'm guessing they didn't strap on their nice boots. They might have tightened up their sandals and got ready to go, right? Uh, probably why the text says that Jesus is famished, right? He is wearied when they get there at high noon. Well, why am I telling you this? As we return back here to the map, uh, Without understanding the geography, we might read that Jesus had to pass through Samaria to get to Galilee and think that he had no other options than to do so. However, we have already studied another route that Jesus took from the Jordan River to Galilee. You'll remember that after Jesus appeared out of the wilderness where John was baptizing, he gathered up Andrew, remember in John, the first two, and then he moved up the Jordan River Valley and he picked up Peter, who was a fisherman. Now, where do you think Peter was hanging out? In the plain of the Jordan River or at the lake, the Sea of Galilee, fishing, right? That's where he's from. So they pick up, they go on up, right? That's what seems like a nice flat path on your way up to uh, the Sea of Galilee. And he picked up uh, Peter there. And then he picked up Philip, remember? And then you'll remember that Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see, we have found the Lord, right? He was so excited. And uh, he was on his way, remember, to Cana for a wedding. So Jesus could have taken the route across the Jordan to the north, or he could have uh, traveled over to the coast, and he could have traveled north into Galilee, up the coast over there, would have been flat country. Why am I belaboring you with this geography lesson? Somebody say, Why? <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> well, the answer is instructive to us. And that answer, obedience, is that obedience to the Father's will will not always be the easy path in life, but it is the one that will bring us genuine fulfillment in 
this life. Let me say that again. Jesus is submitted to the Father. He is not just independently going wherever he pleases to go. It's not an accident that he needs to be in Samaria at noon on this day. There's certainly circumstances pressing. There's tension rising with the, with the Pharisees and between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John and all that. But at the end of the day, he's got to get to Samaria and he needs to be there by noon. He needs to be there by noon. You see, beloved, Orthodox Jews would not pass through Samaria because of their disdain for Samaritans. Jesus did not have to go through Samaria because it was the only way, listen, to Galilee. He went because he had, uh, it had been revealed to him that he had an appointment to keep with a Samaritan woman at the well. Amen? We fast forward in this narrative to verse 31 through 34. We see a picture of this timeless truth of Jesus doing the Father's will. Verse 8 tells us that after arriving uh, well, uh, his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And when they returned, verse 31, as I just mentioned to you, they were urging him, right, telling him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. In verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food, in other words, that which fulfills and sustains me is not just the food that you went off to get, right? But it is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Beloved, if you've never said it in your hearts, to put the word of God first in your life, to not just read it to know it, but read it to say, Lord, how would you have me to interact with this unbelieving person? How would you have me to interact with my husband? How would you have me to interact with my church leaders? How would you have me to do it? And then do it. Then you've never un- you'll never understand what Jesus is speaking of here. To have true fulfillment is to do that which the Father has willed for us to do. And it doesn't always make sense. And sometimes it looks like marching yourself up a mountain when you could just go straight north up the easy path. Remember that Jesus is like, is like no other man on earth. He is the eternal Son of God who has no indwelling sin. But like you and I should aspire to be, he is fully submitted to the Father's will and has the Holy Spirit without measure. And he says that he is fulfilled. It's fulfilling it to him to do the Father's work. We should, in our ears and in our minds and our hearts, remember back to a couple of weeks ago when John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus and his disciples are confused because all oh, the people are coming to Jesus rather than them. And, and John says, listen, this is the way it's supposed to be. He's got to increase. I, I've got to decrease. He's the one who brings eternal life. I'm fulfilled. I've done what I'm supposed to do. It wasn't a popularity contest for John. He had certainly been popular, but he's saying, no, to do the Father's will, I I, got to decrease. I got to do the hard thing. He's got to increase. Well, but Jesus had to go through Samaria because the Father had made an appointment for him. Jesus said to his disciples in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to accomplish his work. That's what fulfilled Jesus. 
And beloved, that's what will fill us. That will fulfill us through the hard times, through the difficult times, getting to the Word of God, obeying it when it doesn't make sense, doing, not just talking, being a believer and a follower of Christ. Amen. Friends, when we think about our lives, are, are they all about doing the Father's will? Are we taking the easy path just because it is easier? Have we disciplined ourselves to ascend to the hard places God has called us to? Do we march up the mountain of forgiveness when somebody wrongfully mistreats us? Rather than trying to fight in some courtroom scene and, and get all the facts right and get everything straightened out, <coughs> do we just remember that we're called to forgive like Christ forgave us? Have you marched yourself up that mountain? Do we march ourselves up the mountain that, that, that Jesus would say in Matthew 6, 14, <coughs> uh, and say, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. <coughs> Married couples, do you march yourself up the mountain of submission when your spouse, uh, for the umpteenth time, does something you despise? I never do that. Listen, the food of the Father's will in Ephesians 5.22 says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25, Husbands, are you loving your wives just as Christ also loved and gave himself up for her? Are you doing that? That's the mountain. You could take the easy way. You could sweep it under the carpet you could tell your spouse, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm just going to forget about it or I'm going to be quiet and not say a word. Or husbands, you could die to yourself, bring unity in your marriage, knowing and extending mercy and grace to your family members. And wives, you could, you could look at your husband even as disrespectful and dishonoring as he can be and sometimes is. Say, I'm going to love him like he is the Lord Jesus himself. Can you imagine? Kids, do you march yourself up the mountain of obeying your parents? The food of the Father's will in Ephesians 6.1 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Well, I don't like my parents, you say. I don't like what they asked me to do. I don't want them to do. Uh, I don't want to do. I'm smarter than them. I have a better perspective on all that's going on in life. March yourself up that mountain. And do the Father's will, and you'll be fulfilled. Amen? You see, beloved, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria because it was the only way to Galilee. There were, in fact, much easier paths obtainable. However, he marched himself up that mountain because it had been revealed to him that he had an appointment to keep with a Samaritan woman. And like the demoniac legion who was sent back to his hometown, this woman, right, would become another unlikely convert that would return home and tell everyone about the Messiah who she had just met. One turns into many. Amen? So verse 6 says that Jesus, who had to pass through Samaria, was wearied from his journey and was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. You'll remember from a couple of weeks ago in John 3 that we studied the evangelism effort of Jesus with a religious Jew named Nicodemus who rejected genuine faith in Christ. And I can't help but 
uh, help to point out to you all that we, we know that in the 20th chapter of John, that John says the whole reason he writes all these things down is so that you would see the Christ and, and then seeing in the Christ that you would believe. And here we have two pictures of very, very different people. You have Nicodemus, the religious, righteous man in John chapter 3, who, 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 who likely in our minds, if we didn't know the story, we would say, oh, well, this guy's going to get saved. He's going to turn from his sin, and he's going to put his faith in Christ, and he's going to change the world. Look at all the biblical knowledge he has. And he denies Christ. And now Jesus is going to show up to Samaria, a place that most Orthodox Jews won't even travel through, won't even walk through and certainly would not associate with. And we're going to see a woman who, uh, one, would just culturally, he is not supposed to be talking to, right? And, and then furthermore, it's a Samaritan woman who he's not supposed to talk to. And then he already knows, God has revealed to him that she's an immoral woman. Of all things, so opposite than Nicodemus. And what does she do? But she hears that I am the Christ. And her heart turns. <laughs> And she runs back to her city like the demoniac and she preaches the gospel and says, come meet a man. What a difference. See how it is that Christ, oh, see, I paused for just a second too. Come meet this man. Jesus in his obedience to the Father has a meeting with an unlikely convert. It says this in verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And in verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Beloved, this last statement in the parenthesis in your Bible is evidence that the Apostle John is writing to a wider ethnic crowd than just Jews. It points to the reality that John, being exiled uh, to the island of Patmos near Ephesus, uh, a Gentile area in modern-day Turkey, understood not everybody reading or hearing this gospel written some 60 years after the events of Christ uh, is going to understand the tension between Jews and Samaritans. Nevertheless, uh, for a Jew who would have been reading this gospel, this interaction between Jesus and Samaria and the Samaritan woman would have been nothing short of scandalous. Nothing short of scandalous. First, it would not have been appropriate for Jesus to be speaking alone with a female. Uh, second, this female was a Samaritan. Take a look there at that map, and if you'll remember your biblical history, you will know that the region of Samaria just north of Jerusalem was inhabited by the ten tribes of Israel who had descended into gross idolatry, and God judged them by exile in Assyria in 722 B.C. And so right there where the orange line starts on the bottom, up to the north, and you kind of see that little point up there, that's Mount Carmel. You remember Elijah uh, uh, and, and the prophets, or, or that's all happening there. And that line kind of becomes the line for where Samaria is from Jerusalem there to that point up on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's Samaria. In that area, the ten tribes, you'll remember, disobeyed, and they began to, to uh, worship idols, and, and ultimately the culmination, like our nation today, is that they begin to sacrifice their children, and God judges them. 
and cast them out of the land. And from that very time, uh, that very time, they became those who would be looked down upon because of that disobedience. Does that make sense? And the tensions begin to rise. About 400 BC, they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And then about 128 BC, uh, some of the Hasmonean Jews come in and they destroy that temple. And so when Jesus begins to have this conversation with a woman, we worship here and you worship there, that's what's going on as the, the history of this is playing out. And, and Jesus, of course, is going to fix all that in her mind. This is the Samaritan uh, woman. Some, were, some within that region of Samaria were interbred with the Assyrians while others were fully Jewish. Either way, whether uh, because of their heritage of idolatry or their mixed ethnicity, Orthodox Jews avoided them at all costs. Some commentators noted that Jewish sources from the first century reveal that Jews would often pray even, listen here, just think about how hard-hearted this is, that Samaritans would not be resurrected at the resurrection. Would not be resurrected. That is the hatred. Hence, verse 27 says, at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. So, beloved, Jesus has met an unlikely convert. At this point, she has two strikes against her. She is a woman. Number one, two, she is a Samaritan woman. And as we'll see in just a few moments, it has been revealed to Jesus that she is a very immoral Samaritan woman. But none of these things deter Jesus. Throughout his ministry, he will maintain that he has been sent to seek that which is lost and to be a physician to those who are sick and in bondage here, listen, to sin. Remember in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said this, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And there we have the picture. Jesus calls the self-righteous Nicodemus, and he rejects. Jesus calls the sinning lady, and she is going to accept, and lives are going to be changed. Beloved, I fear that much too often in our own lives, whether it be from busyness or more likely fear, when we see people that are so outside of our demographic, maybe they're a different color of skin, maybe they have big, big weird earrings that you don't like and wouldn't let your kids have, maybe they have haircuts that you wouldn't like, maybe they're confused about their sexuality, maybe they are uh, 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 frustrated with, with life in general and you have been working with them for a long time and you know that they have great disdain and hatred for Jesus. They still need to hear the Word of God, everything that Jesus would have, would have seen, everything in the natural, would have said, stay away from her. She is outside the demographic. She won't get saved. She worships wrong. She is a she, and she is an adulteress. Don't get caught with her. Others will likely think that you are having an affair with her. Don't do that. Oh, beloved, but Jesus was sent to save the sick and the lost. How many times, how many times do we pass by those who we maybe assume immediately that they would not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe you could take a moment and ask the Lord to forgive you for giving up on those outcast people like the Samaritan woman whom Jesus died for. 
Maybe we could commit ourselves to praying for unlikely converts that are in our lives, those that the Lord has allowed to be in your life, and to once again muster up the courage to share with them the love of Christ. Would you commit to doing that? Maybe you can just close your eyes for a second and think about that person who you have written off. They are outside of God's grace. Repent and love them and show them the love of Christ. Amen. You see, beloved, Jesus was and is all about meeting and changing the lives of unlikely converts. Let's take a look at what we can learn from how Jesus evangelizes this Samaritan woman. Pay attention as this will help us, right, to understand how Jesus went about reaching people, reaching people. The first thing that Jesus does in verses 10 through 15 is lead the Samaritan woman to the recognition of her need for eternal life. He had used the same method with Nicodemus telling him in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He makes this very spiritual statement in the context of John. Here, Jesus does the same thing, makes a very spiritual statement in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. This is the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I might pause here and maybe just tie some theological points together for you. You'll remember that Jesus tells Nicodemus that you must be born of the what? The water, right? And the spirit. And we talked about how the, those could mean a few different things, but, but really, rightfully, when we look back to Ezekiel and we look back to the promises of the Old Testament, the, the idea of salvation is a washing of water. And here, Jesus uses it differently than he did Nicodemus, but he's telling her, right, you need the living water, the water that doesn't run out, the water that will wash you, the water that will give you a new spirit, that will give you a new life. Like Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again, springing up to eternal life. So it is, beloved, that Jesus first uses the promises of eternal life to get the attention of Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. Both were confused by the eternal offer. They both read it very, very, very literally, right? Or understood it very literally. Nicodemus, remember, he asked... On this Mother's Day, we might think about this, if he was supposed to crawl back up into his mother's womb a second time. Now, can you imagine a grown man doing that? Wouldn't be a good thing to imagine. I'm sorry I did that to you, right? Here's the idea, right? That wasn't going to happen. And, and certainly, Nicodemus is mocking Jesus at some level, right? What are we supposed to do? Do this? Well, look, the lady comes back at the same thing, not having ears to hear. Sir, verse 15, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and not have to come all the way here to draw, right? Seems natural. Crawl back up into your mother's womb. Uh, give me a little water that I never have to drink again. That would be super cool, which I would appreciate as I'm really dry this morning, <clears throat> right? Quite obviously, the woman was not picking up, right, what Jesus was putting down. So the first step to evangelizing here is to tell them of their need for eternal life. 
It's kind of like knocking on a blank slate a little bit, right? It's opening the door. It's breaking the ice, maybe. And the second step Jesus uses to evangelize this unlikely convert, he gets her to admit, like the demoniac was in bondage, that she has sin. That she has sin. So Jesus said to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And after Jesus prophetically told her that she had been intimate with six different men, verse 19 says, the woman said to her, Sir, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, many of you will know that I was born again in a, in a charismatic church setting and in those churches, it is often taught that the gift of prophecy or reading someone's mail is sometimes what you'll, you'll, you'll hear it said uh, in those worlds, um, that, uh, uh, that God has gifted somebody to be able to tell them, someone they may not know, about sin that is in their life. And I remember as a brand new Christian being fearful any time I went to church thinking that someone would know the sin, especially the pastor, Right? That was in my life, and, and he would call me out. And my pastor, my very first pastor, his name was Pastor Dick Remington, and, and he was a very nice man, but he was a pastor, and he was a shepherd, and he was a man's man. And he had this kind of way of moving his eyebrows when he looked at you that kind of just was a little bit intimidating, right? And the whole time I'm thinking, right, that this guy's going to know every sin that I have ever committed, and he's going to begin to tell me I'm a brand new believer, and this is what I'm thinking is going to happen, right? And I certainly had plenty of sin in my life to be fearful of. And although I no longer believe that this is meant to be a common gift that is, that is used today, not saying the Lord could not do that, I often wish, listen here, as a pastor that it was, and, and, and as a matter of fact, Paul says, pray, right, that, that you would have the greater gift and maybe the gift of prophecy. So, so just know I'm praying because wading through partial truth during counseling sessions and difficult things in the church sometimes get confusing, and I would much rather just get the download, right? It's like, whoop, I already watched this movie. <laughs> I know what you're doing, right? This is kind of what's happening in this lady's life, right? God, uh, God through Jesus, is telling her, revealing to her her, her life and her lifestyle, her, her sin, right? And if you can put yourself in her shoes, all of a sudden she's like, whoa, right? The gig is up, <laughs> Right, I am I, I, no one in front of this prophet. God is aware of my sin. It's hard to understand uh, exactly how the conversation goes here, and it certainly could be one of, one of a couple of different things. One could, could be that, that, that she's just throwing some curveballs of religiosity now. She doesn't want to deal with her sin, or, or maybe it is she has genuine questions. I think it's probably the primary that she begins to to try and shift gears or get away from her sin. And if you've ever spent time and committed yourself to talking about uh, Christ to people and sharing the gospel with them, this is the kind of thing that often happens, right? You, you, you reveal their need for eternal life, you reveal the reality of their sin, and then pretty soon it's like, hey, listen, and don't you know that I went through a catechism when I was a kid? Did I, you know, I worship this way. This is the church that I go to. I prayed a prayer when I was this old, or I, I did this thing, or my grandfather was the pastor of a church, or my, my mom raised me in church, or I'm a Catholic, or right? Don't tell me that I've got to fix something. <laughs> I got it all figured out. I got it all figured out. 
She begins to argue with the Lord, right? And, and, and telling her, him about the, uh, where the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim and how she thought that was right. And, and you Jews, she says, right? Very disdainful, right? You Jews say it's a different way. And Jesus is not buying what she is selling. And nor should we when we are sharing the gospel. We must hold the line, beloved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way in the truth, in the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't let her out. He doesn't let her out of the pressure of recognizing her sin. He doesn't let her believe that she can worship however she wants to worship and all things will be well. Responding to the woman's misguided religion, Jesus told her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. After dismissing Jesus' claim about true worship, verse 25 says and reveals um, her second religious curveball that she throws Jesus. She understood Jesus to be a prophet because he had revealed her sin, but once again she tries to shrug it, shrug it off and says this, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes... He will declare all things to us. Beloved, the woman is effectively saying, rather than deal with my sin and believe a Jewish man about correct worship, I'll wait for the authority, right? The Messiah. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now I want to conjecture here so you can leave it or take it or forget it or whatever you want or maybe you talk about it over lunch, but, but I want to conjecture for just a moment. When you do a little bit of study, all these, these towns are hard to identify. John the Baptist has been planting seeds in this area around Samaria already, preaching and baptizing for as much as up to six months uh, in this region, if not uh, uh, very close to this very town. And I believe it is likely that the woman in the surrounding region have heard John saying that the Messiah has come. That's his message, right? He's come. John has moved north into Samaria and uh, territory. He's, he's preaching. He's planting seeds. And, I, and I'm not so sure, take it or leave it, that she has not heard this, that the Messiah is here. I don't know that it's out of this place. Well, we know the Messiah is coming and we've been waiting for 3,000 or 2,000 years and all this stuff. I think it's more like, I know that the Messiah is here and when he gets here, I'll make sure, and he'll make sure and straighten all this out. And I think that it fits the text well here because Jesus really says uh, a very simple thing. I am. He says to her, I am. You'll see there in your text that his response is, I am he, and sometimes translators uh, are helpful, and other times it's not so helpful. And, and, and uh, John's purpose throughout his gospel is to repeat these I am statements. And that's all he says to her. Ego a me, I am. I am him. I am that Messiah. So it is, beloved, Jesus' Jesus's method to reach this unlikely convert was to offer her eternal life, uh, get her to recognize her sin, avoid, uh, uh, avoid her, her religious misguidedness, and tell her that he was, in fact, the one she had been waiting for. After his disciples returned, saying, Why do you speak with her? Verse 28 
gives evidence that this unlikely convert became a believer. It says this in verse 28, so the woman left her water pot. Imagine this. I mean, kind of a weird interaction, right? It's, you need living water, you worship wrong, I'm he, and she drops everything and runs back to town. After he says, I am he. He's expecting, she's anticipating, she's looking for the Messiah. And whether it's because John the Baptist or the disciples or whatever, we don't have all the details. We know that she is primed and she is ready and she has been pricked by her sin. She's, Jesus has prophesied to her all of her sin and says, oh, by the way, I am the one you've been waiting for. Come and see a man, she says to the town. Come and see a man who told me all about the things that I have done. This, this is not the Christ, is it? Question mark. And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Beloved, God is in the business of saving unlikely converts. And like the demoniac who went back to his hometown to tell people about Jesus, and Philip who told Nathaniel to come and see <laughs> this cultural, ethnic, immoral, Jewish outcast, also could not wait to tell people, come and see she had found the Messiah. Well, this brings us to our final thoughts. In the crescendo of this narrative, the fields are ripe for the harvest. While many Samaritans are approaching through the fields, if you can maybe put yourself in this place, right? She has ran off. People are talking, no, no doubt. Jesus is spending time with his disciples, maybe resting. Now all of a sudden, he's looking out from the well, and there are nice fields out here, and people are beginning to approach. And some commentators, I don't know, I didn't do enough study to tell you, uh, like to say that most of their clothes are, are white because it would have been very expensive to have dyed clothes. And, and this is the imagery that Jesus begins to pull from as he is talking to his disciples and looking out at the fields, and people are beginning to approach because of the woman's uh, word. And he turns to his disciples as they are approaching and says in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes, right? Look out there. Here they come. Here they come. The harvest is white. The harvest is ripe. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, very specific, right? The, uh, the saying is true. One sows, no doubt, the immoral woman she has gone back and she is scattering seed, right? One is sowing. And another reaps. That'd be the disciples. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored for, right? Likely a reference to the, to, even to the bread. There's a very natural, uh, natural thing that's going on here. I, I sent you into the city to get something you didn't labor for, right? And now, once again, here come all of these who, who, who have been, the, the, the seed has been planted, the, 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 the work is being done, God is moving in their heart, and they themselves, like receiving the work of the labor of the bread, will be receiving as God brings in the harvest. Amen? Friends, effectively, the Samaritans believed in Jesus because of what 
the unlikely converted woman had said to them. And if they did not initially believe, they believed after they met the Messiah. Look at verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said. Uh, uh, that's the woman there. Uh, it is no longer because of what the woman said to them when she came to the town. Come and see a man who told me. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Beloved, sometimes when we share our testimony, like the Samaritan woman's testimony, people will believe, and it's an important thing to do. People can connect to your story, and you should do it. However, there are other times when, when maybe they're seeking and they just don't get it, and, and what we need to do is bring them to the Word of God and just say, just be willing, be ready to go, be willing up to walk up the hard mountain and cancel a few appointments and say, you know what? Why don't we spend the next month and read through the Gospel of John together and you can read the very words of Jesus for yourself. Bring them to the Lord. Maybe they'll believe because of your testimony. Maybe they'll believe because you brought them to the Lord. Maybe it'll be both. I don't know. I don't know. We never know, beloved, who we are talking to and Pastor Paul mentioned last week D.L. Moody, who was really cast off as a young man who couldn't even speak a full sentence. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people came to know the Lord through D.L. Moody. Who are you talking to? Who have you written off? Who do you think could never reach the world? The demoniac? The Samaritan woman? Who in your life? Have faith, beloved. Share your testimony with others and get them to meet Jesus. Amen. If you're in here this morning and have not met Christ as your Lord and Savior, I really pray that you would just take a moment before you leave, come and talk to myself, come and talk to one of the elders. I'll be in the back and some of the elders will be up here. But don't leave. Maybe you have written somebody off in your life and you're running into people and you think, I'm too busy to talk to that person and they certainly don't fit in our, my demographic. Don't do that. Jesus saves unlikely believers who reach the world. Amen. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, beloved, where he met an unlikely convert who learns that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and teaches us that God uses those unlikely comforts to save the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to study this passage and, and certainly its impact on us. Lord, I pray that you would put within the hearts of your people uh, just a passion to, to study even this text and go back to Nicodemus and think about how it is that you reached people, how you shook up their world, Lord. He pointed out their sin and then gave them the answer. Lord, help us to reach out to people we just look at and immediately, I certainly am guilty of this, just think they would never listen. Help us, Lord, to be reminded that you love the world and that you died for their sin, regardless of what our thoughts are about them. God, we know it'll take your spirit to do this and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you all the glory because it's you who do the work. You are the true reaper, the one who harvests souls. Help us, Lord, in this life to be on mission and to say no to the easy path and to the path that you've called us unto. We 
pray and we'll give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name.